0: Greetings, both history fans and film fans. If you haven't already, follow us on Instagram at History and Film. It's a good way to know when new episodes drop or just see other interesting history or film tidbits. And if you have any other questions, comments, or concerns, feel free to email me at Simmons at tracknerds.com. Enjoy the show. So, welcome to another little bonus episode here. Actually, little is probably not the best word since we're talking about the Revolutionary War. Basically, since we just got done talking about the signing of the Declaration of Independence in 1776, and we're going to get to Alexander Hamilton and the first couple presidencies and the Constitution and all that kind of stuff, there wasn't really time in either of those episodes to talk about the Revolutionary War itself. So, that's why we wanted to squeeze this episode in. We'll be looking at both the 2000 film The Patriot and the 1939 film Drums Along the Mohawk to talk about or as an excuse to talk about the actual fighting of the Revolutionary War itself. And again, we keep talking about how we're just not off to a good start with the quality of movies here. And I'm curious to hear what your thoughts in general were about these two films, because I really don't like either of them.
1: Okay, so... For, I'll, I'll start with The Patriot, uh, because it's, it's the one that I've seen the most number of times. I actually kind of like it. Like, it ha- it definitely has its faults. I know it's not by any means a perfect movie, but... Uh, That's an understatement. <laughs> it's... I don't know. I To me, like, the cool scenes kind of make up enough for, like, the goofiness of what's happening in the story to where, like, you know... Like, the the Roland Emmerich direction of, like, the cool battle scenes, specifically, like, the scene kind of towards the beginning where he, like, where Mel Gibson is looking out his front porch and there's, like, that pan across, like, the huge battle that's going on, that scene rules. The ambush scene with his kids, that scene rules. Like, there's cool stuff in it, but... Yeah, the the rest <laughs> the rest of it is not good. Uh, Drums along the Mohawk. I I did not like it at all.
0: No, and I kind of yeah, I kind of was hoping because it and it also has a good pedigree with. I mean, John Ford is by if you ask about anybody in Hollywood who's the better director, Roland Emmerich or John Ford, they're all going to say John Ford. But this is kind of lesser Ford. It, you know, unlike a lot of his movies, he's like The Searchers and and kind of big. He's kind of known for big epic westerns and a lot of those kind of movies and a lot of them are like best picture nominees not this one so this is definitely lesser ford if you're gonna look at it that way but with fonda and everybody i was kind of i was kind of hopeful and yeah it's uh it's a big miss. i was bored out of my mind in the in the drums along the mohawk oh
1: god it is it's so boring and like the word that i would use to describe it if i had to describe it in one word is just lame like the movie is just like Oh my god! Like I don't care about any, any of this. It's, it's so boring. Like the action is not that cool or fun. Like I don't know. It just it feels like I'm watching a movie from 1939 and not in a good way. But there's some really good movies from 1939. But that's what I'm saying. It it feels like okay. Like it. it you know when people have an aversion to watching. Like the super hammed up, cheesy, corny movies from the 30s and 40s. And like, they're like, oh, yeah, I don't want to watch It's a Wonderful Life because it was made in the 40s and movies back then were just worse. It's like, this is the kind of movies that they're talking about.
0: Yeah. You're no, you're that's that's probably a good point. Let's uh, okay. I want to do two things. I want to go into a little more detail about the films, but not so much so because again, neither of them are too closely rooted to true stories, although also both right. have more historical stuff than I had realized going in.
1: Yeah, especially the Patriot. Like, it's yeah. it's based on a lot of stuff, and there's a lot of, like, one-to-one comparisons where it's like, oh, okay, this person isn't named the thing, but, like, this is this guy from the Revolutionary War. But,
0: anyways. And honestly, both of them do a good job of putting you in the world of the colonies on the brink of the revolutionary war and the early fighting of the revolutionary war like you're in the world pretty accurately in both to to a point at least well at least aesthetically there's a lot of oh yeah i, I don't mean like, i don't mean like plot points i just kind of mean like the world the films present us both seem uh, appropriate <laughs> i guess it's the way to say it yeah so in the patriot we are in south carolina mel gibson's character is fictional but he's also kind of an amalgamation of several m- real men um it looks like f- it looks like five on wikipedia but one kind of stood out to me as the most significant and that would be thomas Sum- sumter uh who was a military leader future politician from south carolina who after the british destroyed his home fought very savagely against them and then he's the guy who Fort Sumter, famous from the Civil War, is named after. So that seems to be right, pretty yeah. significant. But I think all the stuff with his family, like that, that all seems to be, all the family stuff seems to be fictional. I couldn't find any of the guys that had the family stuff going on that Mel's character has here.
1: No, that stuff's made up whole cloth for the yeah. for the movie. And actually, on a way way side note, this last summer, my brother and my dad both went to Fort Sumter. In South Carolina to go see the museum there.
0: Oh, they actually went because I I've seen it from the coast. They actually went out to it.
1: Yeah, actually, I think it might have been summer twenty twenty. No, it was this last summer. It's not not important either way. Uh, they said that like the the museum and stuff that they have out there is really cool. Okay, so just to, if anyone's in South Carolina And finds himself looking for something to do. <laughs> yes, that's, that's that's a civil
0: war, so that's getting ahead of our timeline here. Yes.
1: <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah.
0: That's why I said way way side. Note. And uh, what I did like. And again, I again I don't like this movie, and I actually I think the scene of him and his kids taking on the British troops is like all of a sudden it's John Wick, and it completely takes you out of a Revolutionary War movie. I'm like, this is just ridiculous. Like, it's cool, but it has no place in a movie that's trying to be a Revolutionary <laughs> War film. Anyway, I don't know i I would I think I would disagree.
1: <laughs> I, obviously, obviously not in the exact way that it happens, but like I don't think that it's outside of the realm of possibility to think that this guy who lives on a plantation in the south in the 1770s would have kids that were comfortable around firearms knew how to shoot guns now i don't know if they're the
0: kids didn't miss
1: they're i don't know yeah exactly i don't know if they're going to be you know dome and red coats at 150 yards or whatever it was
0: one for one every shot was a kill shot in that scene every shot was a kill shot unless you're british of course yeah
1: so so that's you know I could see that,
0: but like the just and then the hand to hand honestly, the hand to hand with the hatchet, I thought was more unrealistic i'll I'll give you the firearm stuff that when he goes hand to hand with with his his uh his axe, yeah, no, nah, no, nah. that's John Wick, I don't know, but that's the cool, but that's so cool. oh, it's cool, <laughs> but it's so cool, so we can clean out the movie, it's like all of a sudden I'm watching a different movie now, yeah, okay, maybe, <laughs> <laughs> it's just yeah, I don't know.
1: It's just so badass.
0: <laughs> no. And honestly, we've we've I feel like we've had this conversation a lot where we just have different interests in movies, and I do like those things when appropriate. And here it didn't feel appropriate. It's just dumb. It's just dumb fun. Exactly. It's dumb fun. And that's so all I have to think it's a dumb movie. <laughs> whereas again, where I think the difference is, actually, I do think this is a okay, important as a stretch, but in a John Wick. That is what it is. It's having fun with it, and it's not pretending yeah, to be okay. something else. In something like the Patriot, it's pretending to be something else. And when you put those together, it just doesn't fit for me. Because I can enjoy a John Wick for what it is, but if you put John Wick stuff into the Patriot, it's out of place. Okay,
1: I, I see what you're. I see what you're saying.
0: You got to. You got to stay in your lane. Stay in your lane. Basically, is what I'm saying. So what I did like is early on, though, and I thought this is really what kind of captured the moment of 1776. For me, they're down in South Carolina, and Mel's character gets summoned to a meeting. They basically even call it a Congress. So they kind of go from their farm to Charleston. And I guess I had never thought about all of these different Congresses happening all over. It makes sense. So we see 1776, and all the representatives from all the colonies are meeting in Philadelphia. But also what, right. what would have happened, obviously, outside of that is, well, each colony is obviously having its own meeting before sending such representatives. And so it really kind of highlighted that for me, that here's a meeting in Charleston and South Carolina is discussing what is best for South Carolina. And right. we have Chris Cooper's character trying to recruit basically, hey, eight of the 13 colonies have already put money towards a continental army to kind of fight on behalf of all of us. I'm here to petition that South Carolina become the ninth and we start sending troops as well and putting together our own militias. Mel is an outspoken voice against it because having seen the horrors of the French and Indian War, he would rather just kind of stay peaceful. And while he wants independence, he wants to find nonviolent means to achieve them. And they do kind of mention that they are expecting a declaration of independence from Philadelphia soon. So again, in my mind, that means we're probably in May or June of 1776. Maybe even earlier with how slow things happened back then, but I I'd, I'd probably guess May or June. Uh it ultimately does pass and they see him start signing up troops immediately. And that's where he kind of gets in with his son. His son is eighteen and wants to sign up and Mel's trying to uh prevent him. But again, I thought that did a good job of just what the world in South Carolina in 1776 may have looked like. And that felt very authentic to me.
1: Yeah and and the fact that you know all those those separate congresses were going on I mean it, it really was I mean it it really does illustrate how the colonies at that time were closer to acting like 13 different countries yes. than they were to acting like right. one country
0: and we forget that in today's world where we see ourselves as kind of american first and then our citizens of our state second right
1: and back then it was definitely the other way around right i mean they, they understood that they, that they had a shared interest in that you know they were all the colonies are all geographically located yeah and they're trading
0: partners with each other right
1: right but they were South Carolinians or New Yorkers or
0: Pennsylvanians first before they were Americans. Right, right. And uh, here's a question for you. They mention the Continentals as like a a term for the official army. Is is that accurate? Is that what they would have called it back then? Like they would refer to it as? Yeah,
1: it was called the Continental Army. The actual, like, the United States Army and the United States Navy weren't founded until later on. Oh, true. There's
0: no... There's no U.S.
1: Yeah, okay. You know, until after the United States was had a constitution and was at its its own political entity, but all of the branches of the military now do trace their lineage back to their continental roots. Okay, so that's why, like, the Marine Corps birthday is celebrated on November 10th because it's considered to be founded on November 10th, 1775. Uh huh. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not its actual foundation,
0: you know, through the Constitution, much later. Okay, that, that's it. yeah, that makes sense though. And so, actually, and I didn't necessarily plan on doing this, but let's jump over because we kind of ha- we now we're at the out. Well, again, the fighting obviously started in 1775, and, and I'm going to let you get more into like the beat by beat of the war itself. But let's uh, let's switch over to just the initial setting, likewise for Drums Along the Mohawk, because I thought it was interesting that it it was basically roughly the exact same time from a movie you know 60 years older and uh in a different part of the country so it's actually up in new york and we see henry fonda's character getting married in albany before moving out to the quote frontier with his new wife but the frontier in 1776 is just western new york state and so he actually never even leaves yeah. new york but that's still the frontier
1: yeah very much uh last of the mohicans
0: ching yeah yeah yeah
1: ching type setting right. i mean it's it's that's all upstate new york on the frontier in that time period yeah very very similar
0: right and just a couple of decades after all those james fenimore cooper uh novels
1: what was the other uh, oh northwest passage also was uh, oh, true. upstate new york yeah
0: yeah and man, I've, and that's, that's on my list of things to visit because I've been to New York City a couple of times, but I've never been to upstate New York, which is, again, a completely different mm-hmm. thing. There's lots of beautiful things there. And of course, you also get into, well, Buffalo and Niagara Falls. Anyway, I'd like to visit there at some point. But it does look like a lot of the stuff here was pretty accurate as well. They talk about moving to Deerfield and that German Flats is the nearest fort to Deerfield. That's all correct. And the Mohawk River is in upstate New York, so Drums along the Mohawk. Um, all that's pretty accurate. Um, my two random notes. Did you know? Both movies have older guys using some kind of like pipe horn thing uh, as hearing aids. That actually is in both movies. So
1: yeah, I I wonder if that's just a thing because it's not really like necessary or like influential to the
0: plot. Really, no, in right. any
1: Anyway, it's I think it's just kind of like to set the time.
0: I know, right? I think it's probably again. I didn't research it, but I'm sure this kind of thing is accurate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I don't. know. You're hear. You're hearing horn. <laughs>
1: when I see it in the Patriot, like. The first time that I watched it, I thought that maybe that was going to be the setup to something later on. Oh, like a joke? Like that even was gonna a, that was going to pay our plot point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but then it turned. It, it turns out to just honestly kind of just be like a waste of time because <laughs> he has to like repeat himself. Oh, it's like yeah. okay, this is just he wanted to make this scene take twice as long in a movie that's already three hours. But it's, oh
0: my gosh, I can't believe how long the picture it is. <laughs> it is a, a
1: world-building thing, though, so I like it's not yes. a complete waste yeah. of time, no, but like plot-wise. Yeah,
0: yeah. Anyway. And, and again, it's, it is I always talk about it, it is important to have moments of levity in a serious film. So I do think that's, that is actually a good choice. Uh, my other note on Drums Along the Mohawk that I found amusing that they couldn't have known because they're making this movie in 1939, but the opening credits are cross-stitched but it makes it look like a Nintendo game from the eighties because of that. Yeah. Yeah. It looks like eight <laughs> bit. <laughs> yes. I, I literally wrote eight bit Nintendo in my, in my notes because the opening credits of drums, look like an eight bit Nintendo game, but it's 1939. So they couldn't have known that that was ever going to be a thing, but I just, I just yeah. thought that was funny. And then when and they do very similar to the Patriot where they start, once they're kind of out on the quote frontier, Western New York, They also are trying to get a militia together, and we see Henry Fauna join up, and they mention that the Declaration has already been signed, so it seems that they're probably in late summer, early fall of 1776. Yeah. Anyway, and then theirs kind of gets into some actual stuff. The other uh, commonality between both films, which makes sense, but mention of Lord Cornwallis kind of throughout, and I had forgotten that he's literally a character in The Patriot played by Tom Wilkinson. Right. He's actually, like,
1: the only one that's, like, actually named the character that they are historically. Oh, that's probably right. You know what I mean? Like, So, like, Chris Cooper and Jason Isaacs and Mel Gibson, like, they all have their one-to-one analog right. for who they are historically. But, yeah, Cornwallis is actually a character and is named Cornwallis in the movie. He's the only one. Which, that's also... I. I thought it was kind of a weird a weird choice like why why was that decision made?
0: why use the real Cornwallis and not the real American general kind of thing
1: yeah what why why use real Cornwallis and then have three other you know like historical figures that aren't aren't named who they're based on
0: yeah and also it seems like they messed up some timeline stuff
1: yeah so then why not just name cornwallis something different
0: right that makes sense i i see what you're
1: saying or is it is it because everyone everyone knows cornwallis everyone knows the name cornwallis
0: so it's like oh well we can't change that one but the rest of these are minor enough that people aren't going to notice or care well they also talk about washington and technically we do see washington once in silhouette when Heath Ledger's riding home, he sees General Washington walk by on his horse, and it's kind of like even like almost like yeah. slow mo. And so, but he has no lines. And we don't actually encounter him or interact with him. The other one they mention, I don't think he's actually cast as a character, but he's a real life general for the. He wanted to say the Union for the uh, for the uh, colonies. <laughs> is Horatio Gates? They mentioned General Gates multiple times, messing up, and that yeah. is Horatio Gates right. who was known for messing up from time to time i guess one more little random note for drums along the mohawk
1: (laughs) i was like laughing not with the movie but laughing at the movie in the scene towards the beginning when the native guy blueback comes in to their little cabin or whatever oh my gosh and his wife has like just freaks out well and he just henry fonda just smacks her in the face yeah yeah. just smacks her right in the face very 1930s yeah he's he's like i'm sorry i didn't want to do it i had to hit you right he said, i had to hit you I, I had no choice you i you made me do it right that was and, yeah and it's not framed like oh what a like abusive gaslighting dickhead this guy is it's just like oh no he like it's framed as yeah you know he he's just a no-nonsense type of guy so he had to he sp- had to calm her down for her own good yeah yeah <laughs> he had to smack her in the face for her own good uh, I'm like oh my god, this movie was this is this is a very 1939 Hollywood stuff <laughs> we got going on here for
0: sure, for sure. And her reaction in general, of course, again, that might have been an actual you know a legit reaction in the 18th century, I guess, for a woman who'd never left the city. Yeah, I mean, it's it was like completely understandable that she didn't want to be
1: in the frontier because she lived her whole life right. in a kind of like upscale living
0: situation, and all of a sudden she's out here in the middle of nowhere. Right, right. And and basically, basically having a panic attack because she, because she feels constantly now a threat. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So tell us about the Revolutionary War and how it kind of played out with what we've seen in all of the movies we're discussing.
1: Yeah, so we have talked about in the past all of the kind of the, the precursor stuff um, leading up to it with like the Seven Years' War that led to a lot of debt on the British side, which then led to them levying a bunch of different taxes on the colonies that they thought were unfair especially cuz they didn't get representation in parliament i won't go into like the slow long build up cuz we've already talked about all that where i will start is the battles of lexington and concord
0: the shot heard round the world
1: yeah it was uh, an attempt by the british to try and get out ahead of any potential conflict by marching a bunch of troops from boston to the towns or to uh, initially to Lexington and then on to Concord but they were there to capture uh, arms and ammo that were being held that they knew were being held by like rebels rebel forces
0: so kind of a preemptive strike to unarm the disgruntled people
1: right so they're they're trying to get there to capture the to capture the the weapons but they are met by uh, minutemen which is actually how I was talking earlier about how the branches of the military today trace their roots back to the Continental Army and the Continental Navy. The National Guard traces its lineage back to these Minutemen. They're like you know these guys were farmers or shopkeepers or, or whatever job they had, but they always had their their musket and ammo ready to go at a minute's notice, so that if they ever got the call, they could you know show up and help fight the British. So these are the the Minutemen, and these are who. When Paul Revere goes on his midnight ride, his famous midnight ride, these are the
0: guys that he's going to alert, is these Minutemen. So it's basically the night of Lexington Concord that he's riding on. He, like You're talking like within hours of his ride is when this these battles happen. Right. So the British show up at Lexington, and they have
1: a face-off, a uh, stare-down with rebel forces there. And like you said just a couple minutes ago, uh, the shot heard round the world rings out. No one knows who fired that shot or the exact circumstances leading up to it. Basically, there's a stare down, tenders are super high, and one shot goes off. And once the one shot goes off, all the shots go off and it's it's fighting. So the British actually push the rebels back to Concord, where they are then reinforced and then fight the British all the way back to Boston. And kind of the whole way... Oh, they push the British back. Right, yeah. So as the British are going back to Boston, more rebels are showing up, more rebels are showing up, hitting them along the way, all the way back. They're getting attacked. Thus begins the siege of Boston. So the rebels have surrounded the British in Boston. And so this is actually when the Continental Army is formed. Basically, all of these rebels are kind of by Congress turned into the Continental Army And George Washington is given command of the Continental Army. And this is what we talked about in the Chinggagook episode when we were talking about George Washington, how he wore his military uniform every day. Okay, yeah. Like dress for the job you want type deal. And he is, you know, they gave him command
0: because he very clearly wants to be in command of the of the Continental Army. And we should say that this is actually all in 1775 still. We're not even to 1776 yet. Yes. Okay. Correct. Yeah.
1: No, I'm not gonna go over every battle in this in this much detail. It's just this No I,
0: th- I think this is appropriate though, yeah.
1: Lexington and Concord is like is like the start. Like this is where the the hostility starts. Right,
0: it's lighting the match. Yeah.
1: So then in June of seventeen seventy five we have the Battle of Bunker Hill, another famous battle where the British are then breaking the siege of Boston, where they have to basically charge up a hill called Bunker Hill that the colonists are on top of, or the Continental Army is on top of. And they end up running out of ammo and having to retreat, but they only lose a couple hundred guys, and the British lose, like, a thousand. So even though they won, it was like, it was a really big cost. At the Battle of Bunker Hill is Henry Lee, who we talked about giving a eulogy at George Washington's funeral. Oh, yeah. And is Robert E. Lee's father. So the famous Civil War general from the South. It's also, Henry Lee is who Chris Cooper's character is based on in the Patriot. Oh, okay. I didn't realize that. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So that's, that's Henry Lee. So then, uh, Washington and his forces suffer through their first winter, uh, 1775 to 1776. That's actually like a running theme throughout the entire revolutionary war. Every winter sucks for the Continental Army. Like they go through it every winter. Huh. they they gotta like hole up somewhere and it's obviously it's you know it's the northeast in the winter so it's it's always brutally cold you know disease especially at the beginning they don't have um a ton of like discipline and stuff as far as like where to poop and wh- how to keep your drinking water clean and you know how to you know keep your feet dry and stuff like that like they you know it's not as bad this winter as it, as it gets later on, but every winter sucks for the Continental Army.
0: Is some of that because they're kind of out, you know, in theory, outmatched, and so they're kind of out in the wilderness, whereas the British can just stay the winter in a city because they're... Correct. Okay, yes. wow, yeah, that makes sense. That's exactly right,
1: yeah. So, yeah, right, because, the you know, like the British have control of Boston, so they have, like, actual buildings and houses and stuff to stay in, and the Continental Army is like, well, we can't stay in a city. Or we'll just get killed by the
0: British. Right. Yeah, okay.
1: Right. We got to stay out in the middle of nowhere where, where basically we just got to make it too difficult for the British to come out here. And the British are like, yeah, why are we going to waste all this time and energy and men going out to attack you like the elements are going to do enough for, you know, right? they're going to do that for us, basically. Wow. So then uh, as they're suffering through the winter... A bunch of artillery gets towed from Fort Ticonderoga in upstate New York, and they spend like months towing these cannons all the way to Washington and Boston. And he sets them up on high ground in Dorchester Heights, which is like just across the water from the actual city. And when the British see these cannons set up, they say, okay, like, we're basically toast. So it was basically like George Washington points all these cannons at them and is like, hey, if you don't leave Boston, I'm just going to destroy you. So they end up having to leave. Hmm. And George Washington moves his army to uh, New York City because he correctly assumes that if the British land again in the colonies, that's where they're going to land. So is at this time, this is actually in 1776, this is when the independence movement starts to gain steam. Thomas Paine writes Common Sense. And the USA is born
0: July 4th, which we talked about all that yeah, when yeah, we went over 1776. It is interesting just to think, though, that the fighting pre-Declaration was basically just British citizens who are living in, in these colonies being disgruntled and fighting against their own... It's almost a civil war, arguably. It's a civil war until we're a different country, right? Kind of by default. Even though it's not yeah. happening in England, it's technically almost a civil war, yeah.
1: Right. Oh, that's another thing, too. Along with the British, a bunch of loyalists left Boston as well after the siege was over.
0: Right. Not not everyone wanted to be a different country. Right, right.
1: Right. Yeah, That's and that's actually something that we see all the way through the whole thing. Yeah. And it ends up playing kind of a big part in the peace negotiations at the end of the war, where that's, like, a, a big thing is the British are like, hey, like, we'll stop fighting, but you can't just start, like... Massacring all the loyalists, right, right. That was con- the the U.S. at that point was kind of w- had to agree to be like, all right, yeah, we'll forgive and forget. But just getting getting ahead of ourselves a little <laughs> bit. So the British came back, uh, and like Washington predicted, they landed a massive force in New York City. They landed on Staten Island, and they end up pushing Washington's army back after a series of battles that the Americans lost. Americans actually kind of got their asses kicked in 1776 over and over again, um, and they end up getting pushed all the way back across the Delaware River into Pennsylvania. Another harsh winter with uh, George Washington um, in Pennsylvania on one side of the Delaware, the British in New Jersey on the other side, and this is where we have the famous
0: crossing of the Delaware River on Christmas in 1776. Okay. Okay. Okay, so they'd retreated back behind it and now they're going back across it to encounter the British in the winter? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. In in the in on Christmas, on
1: December twenty fifth, in seventeen seventy six, there's that famous painting of George Washington on that boat crossing the Delaware. Yeah. That's what this is. So um they cross the Delaware for a surprise attack and they end up taking back Trenton and Princeton, New Jersey. So after these two defeats the British decide that they want to try and open up a second front in the South where the southern states at this time were actually a lot richer than the northern ones because that's where all the farms and plantations were. and there were there was a higher percentage of like British loyalists in the South than in the north.
0: Oh because actually yeah real quick then that is that is the one thing I forgot to mention they, in the film The Patriot, when they're at that meeting in Charleston, some of the dissenters are saying, hey, Massachusetts and Virginia may be at war with the British, but South Carolina is not. And so that kind of ties into what you're saying there, yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. so the the ratio of loyalists to rebels in the South was a lot higher. Um, And this is also why we briefly mentioned in the Davy Crockett episode about how Davy Crockett's father was involved in a battle called Kings, I think it's Kings Hill or Kings Mountain, something like that. But that battle is the biggest, the biggest battle amongst like loyalists versus rebels of the Revolutionary War. Right. The British weren't involved. Right. And that was in that was in the South. Okay. Uh, so uh, they try to open up the second front in the South, but their initial attempt to capture Charleston is not successful. The U.S. repel them, and this actually kind of emboldens the uh, rebels in the south to start making life more difficult for loyalists Mm. so they start harassing them and just straight up kicking them out of the colonies either making them leave to spanish territory or having to go back to go back to england basically
0: and again the other scene from the patriot when they're going through and he sends basically they're going through the towns to recruit for the militia and they're unsure. They don't want to walk in and recruit a bunch of loyalists because so uh Mel says, "Long live King George!" It to the bar just to get all of them to see. Like, yeah, they immediately get up and angry. He's like, "I think we're in the right place." <laughs> right. Yeah. Exactly.
1: Because there definitely were places in the South where you would say that, and you would be met with, "Oh yeah, you, you, God save the king!" Absolutely. Right, right. Let's go. <laughs> so in September of seventeen seventy-seven. The British go on a run south from New York, and they end up capturing Philadelphia, and Congress is forced to flee to York, Pennsylvania. Also in September 1777 is the Battle of Saratoga, which is notable because the American forces there were led by Benedict Arnold, Mm. Uh, but he was kind of snubbed in his victory because he was... He was told by his commander to like hold fast and don't attack, and Benedict Arnold ignored that order and attacked anyway and was successful. And then his commander kind of took credit for it. Uh-huh. So is like a you know, kind of like strike number one. <laughs> is it like Benedict Arnold gets snubbed? He's he's painted as a well, rightfully painted as a traitor because he did try to like betray the American, the Continental Army, and he did flip sides eventually but as we'll see like he didn't just decide to do that out of nowhere like he was snubbed several times and was not treated very well by like continental leadership but that's
0: also putting his own ego over the cause but yes that's true yes yes but he was he was especially by historians today he was one of the best generals in the conflict right on either side oh yeah he was a very successful military leader like he
1: was yeah, a, a smart tactician. He was, yeah, a great leader. Who just kept getting screwed over, so he switched the sides, yeah. <laughs> exactly, yeah. So after the Battle of Saratoga, this is also significant because it's when the French decide to join the war on the side of the Americans, officially. Basically, the Benjamin Franklin had been in Paris for a long time trying to get the French to join, and the French were like, well, we don't want to like get involved in this war if it's going like, to turn into a kind of a quagmire and... If you guys are just going to lose, we don't want to get into a war with the British on a losing side. But if you guys show that you can win, then, yeah, we'll we'll get involved.
0: We would love nothing more than to put it to the British,
1: yeah. Exactly, yes. So it was after the Battle of Saratoga that the French then do decide to, to join the war. And it, it, it's not just the Battle of Saratoga, but that was kind of like the straw that broke the camel's back in on that front. So... The winter of 1777 into 1778 is the winter of Valley Forge, uh, the famous George Washington winter of Valley Forge. It's also when the Prussian officer slash mercenary Friedrich von Steuben enters the fight on the side of the Americans. Have you ever heard of this guy? No. So depending on how we end up classifying most interesting Americans or if we end up classified as most interesting American or most interesting person in American history, this guy might be on that bracket.
0: I say, I want to count Lafayette. So if you're, if you, if I can count Lafayette, you can count this guy, right? (laughs) Okay.
1: So that Friedrich von Steuben, he was involved in military conflicts from the time he was 14. He gets a, a bunch of like, you know, obviously he's kind of like an upper class, like military leadership family type guy. After the Seven Years War, he can't get any military jobs in Europe because it's peacetime. So he hears there's a war going on in the colonies. So he goes over and joins on the side of the Americans. And he is instrumental in establishing order and discipline among the American troops. Because these guys, like we said before, they're, you know, they're farmers. Yeah, they're all just guys. They're like farmers who basically are like, oh, yeah, I think America should be its own country. So I'm going to pick up a musket, but I've never, I've never fought in an army, right? I don't know how to survive in this, in a a winter living outside. So he, yeah, establishes order and discipline, writes like manuals and stuff Hmm. to basically professionalize the Continental Army. He was also possibly gay, like probably gay. I saw on his Wikipedia page, they talk about these like several younger men that he adopts like to be his heirs, hmm. but apparently, back then, obviously, you couldn't get married if you were gay, but right. you could adopt someone as your heir.
0: Oh.
1: and, like, say, Oh, if I die, I'm gonna pass all my stuff on to them. So it's like my adopted heir, huh. but he had like three of them, huh. <laughs> Anyway, I just thought that that was is kind of interesting. So, after the French joined the war, the British leave Philadelphia. Oh, sorry, so. The Winter in Valley Forge, the British are still in Philadelphia at this time. They occupied the city, and uh, Valley Forge is like just northwest of Philadelphia, so that's where the Continental Army held up. Okay. Basically, just to maintain a presence, keep pressure on the British in Philadelphia, but they weren't actively attacking them. After the French joined the war, the British decide that they're going to leave Philadelphia, kind of abandon it, and consolidate all of their forces back in New York because they want to have a stronger force available for when the French show up. Because it's like, oh, okay, now we're actually fighting another world power. Right. So we need to, like, we're not just, we can't be split up like this anymore. So after the British leave Philadelphia, Benedict Arnold is put in charge of the forces in the city of Philadelphia. And he had already been snubbed a couple times, like, you know, basically credit for his victories were given to other officers. So he already was not feeling the love from the Continental Congress, and then in Philadelphia is kind of where he decides, it's like the the last straw for him as far as uh, his attitudes towards the Continental Army and how much he wants to support the cause. So while he is in charge of the city, he starts hanging out and partying with all the rich elites in Philadelphia. But the people of Philadelphia don't like that very much because these are the same elites that were just partying and hanging out with the British. So they say, hey, you're hanging out and partying with all these people. That's like pro-British behavior, okay. and we don't like that. So they start kind of protesting against him. And George Washington actually writes a letter rebuking him and saying, yeah, that's inappropriate, shouldn't be doing that. So Benedict was like, all right, I've done all this stuff for America And no one seems to appreciate it. So I'm going to go see how much the British will appreciate my services, my talents. Yeah. So he tries to he ends up getting put in charge of West Point, like taken out of Philadelphia, Mm. put in charge of the fort at West Point and tries to basically surrender the fort to the British in secret and join the British side. But his plan is found out when a British officer with documents about the plan is captured so they find out that Benedict Arnold is trying to
0: surrender the fort to the
1: British right surrender the fort so but Benedict Arnold finds out that they found out first before he could be captured so then he leaves and goes to New York and ends up joining the British army and actually ends up leading British troops in the south towards the end of the war so that's like the kind of the full story of how Benedict Arnold ended up thinking that he needed to betray
0: the Americans. Yeah, I'll talk about a little bit about Lafayette, but one of Lafayette's, I think, big victories was against Benedict Arnold in the South.
1: Yeah. All right, so it is at this time in 1779, 1780, that the British finally are able to open up a new front in the South, and it actually is successful this time, and these are the forces that are under the command of General Cornwallis. So he's the one that's put in charge of this advance through, like, Georgia, South Carolina. They capture Savannah in 1779. They capture Charleston in 1780. Which is in The Patriot. Right. And so that's where we actually get into the events of the movie The Patriot. General Cornwallis is accompanied by a British officer named Bannister Tarleton, which I think is maybe the
0: most British name. That you can have, but that would be Benedict Cumberbatch. Thank you very much. Okay, yeah, but like, <laughs> okay, close second, close second, <laughs> close.
1: <laughs> uh, and he, his uh, nickname, he's called the Butcher, Bannister the Butcher. Um, and this is who Jason Isaacs character oh, is based on. Right. So i in in the Patriot, his name is Tavington, but in Realize, it's it, it, the character or the the actual historical figure is Tarleton. Gotcha, and. This one I can kind of see why they changed. I'm not sure why they changed Chris Cooper's character. Like, why not just make him Henry Lee? Yeah. But this one I can kind of understand because they wanted to kill him in the movie and in real life, Bannister Tarleton did not was not killed during the war.
0: Right. Right. But
1: the, but then again, like, there's a bunch of movies where they have historical figures that are that die in a way that they don't actually die in real life. I don't know. L-
0: Louis the Thirteenth killing Cardinal Richelieu in the Disney's of Musketeers. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah.
1: So he's he's known as the butcher because of his obviously like brutality and his ruthless tactics as he fights these battles in the South. He was involved in something called the Waxhaws Massacre where basically there were they were fighting Continental forces. The Continental forces tried to surrender, but during the surrender, either accidentally or on purpose, a shot goes off that makes Tarleton's horse fall on him and then all of Tarleton's forces basically massacre the continental forces even though they were trying to surrender mm. and out of I think it's like 400 they take like 50 something prisoners and the rest are just killed. And so that's there's a an actual like oh, not a not a nickname, but a, a phrase used by the armies in this conflict through the rest of the war called Tarleton's Quarter which is basically like, just kill everyone and don't take any prisoners. A
0: euphemism for killing all, all the people. A yeah. euphemism. That's,
1: that's the word that I was looking for. Yeah. Yeah. A, yeah, they use the euphemism Tarleton's Quarter to refer to just killing everyone. Wow. Huh. So the British army presence and the fact that they're successful, more successful now in the South, enables the loyalists then to become more aggressive. Uh, so before, you know, without, the, without a big British presence, they were a little more demure but now they're kind of rising up. And so it's not looking good for the Continentals in the South. This is when Horatio Gates is sent to try and stop Cornwallis's advance, and he's almost immediately defeated and runs back to Philadelphia. So then they send in Nathaniel Green, who was the guy that George Washington wanted to send, but the Continental Congress sent Horatio Gates. They thought that George Washington didn't want him to be in command because they were like rivals, like professional rivals. Oh, right, right. But Washington was kind of vindicated in wanting Nathaniel Green when Horatio Gates ended up getting defeated at the Battle of Camden, and that's
0: August of 1780. So that's where we are in the timeline. I feel like in the film, do they get some things out of order in the film? Like, I feel like the film jumped from 1776, and then we get a letter from Heath Ledger's character that says, several seasons have passed, and I guess I thought it was 1778. Was it all the way four years later to 1780?
1: Yes, because the battle at the end, the battle at the end is the Battle of Cowpens, and that's January 1781.
0: Okay, so I was thinking the movie jumped two years. It actually jumps about four years. Yeah. Okay, okay. And it might play with the timeline quite a bit too. I
1: was gonna say, I'm having trouble remembering how they characterize the timeline. Maybe they say it's only two years, but yeah, in reality it's it's four
0: years, okay,
1: actually four, almost four and a half,
0: which again, not common for movies to condense timelines, especially in war films, like I kind of get that
1: exactly, yeah, especially this time when like you know, just marching from one battle to the next battle takes several months true true, true. So Nathaniel Green shows up to fight Cornwallis and He ends up doing this tactic where he kind of shows up and then splits his army and moves them. He takes forces to the east and then sends Daniel Morgan with half of his army to the west and basically forces the British army to then split. And this split with Daniel Morgan, Daniel Morgan ends up fighting with forces under the command of Bannister Tarleton uh, at the Battle of Calpins, which is the battle that we see at the end of the patriot and that's january 1781 the british were defeated at that battle uh, so tarleton was defeated but he wasn't killed like we see in the movie he actually ends up surviving the war and goes on to like finish his military career becomes a member of parliament and then dies in 1883 back in england
0: outside of the one instance where they kind of Slaughtered the people who were trying to surrender. Was he known for like the absolute cruelty they ascribe to the character in the film, or probably not? And that's just kind of a hyperbolic thing to make it more interesting and make him a villain.
1: So I didn't see anything about him like burning churches full of people or anything <laughs> like that. Right. That's some Vlad the
0: Impaler stuff there. Right.
1: the The whole butcher thing it seems it seems to be more connected to that Waxos massacre.
0: Okay. Not that that's not bad, but you could see in the heat of the moment doing something like that versus this guy seems actively sadistic the entire time in the film.
1: Correct, yeah. And it is like not only willing, but like he enjoys it. Really wants to like kill civilians and children to send the message
0: that. You shouldn't fight the British Empire. And in the film, Cornwallis even dresses him down and says like, "Um, we're going to have to be trading partners with these people in the future. So maybe cut it out.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So they are defeated at that battle. And then they lead the British on this long chase through North Carolina, doing like kind of like hit and run, like fight a battle, run away really fast, fight a battle, run away really fast. And they're more light and agile force wise than the British were. And so they end up, the British end up kind of, like, overextending their supply lines, and they're, like, having
0: a rough time fighting this conflict through um, North Carolina. Was this where you get into the kind of, like, the guerrilla tactics, or they are still doing, like, a straight-up head-to-head battle, but then beating it?
1: Yeah, it's, it's not, not really guerrilla tactics, so much as it's just, like... We don't have all these, like, giant wagons and, like, formations of tents and stuff. So, like, we'll just, like, fight you and then just run away really fast and then make you have to slowly march up to us and fight us again. And then we'll just run away really fast. And so, like, the British are technically advancing this whole time further and further north. But they're
0: taking losses, yeah.
1: But they're, right, they're taking losses and it's just, it's so slow. Hmm. Cornwallis eventually abandons all of these gains and moves his army to Yorktown basically kind of like a another kind of consolidation of forces at this point Washington finds out that Cornwallis is in Yorktown and fakes an attack on New York City by sending out like fake messages to the rest of his army to like you know his guy like oh you accident oh you caught me I'm a messenger for George Washington oh you got all my papers that say what we're about to do oh no and so all these He sends out these fake messages that say they're going to attack New York when in reality he marches his army down to Yorktown. And, you know, long story short, they surround Yorktown and force a surrender there with the French, with Lafayette, and successfully defeats Cornwallis, uh, who surrenders. And that's kind of like the last defeat that basically convinces the British Parliament. All right, this war is not worth it anymore. You know, they just defeated Cornwallis, who's this legend in the British military, uh so we're gonna it this war's getting expensive, and uh we're gonna we're gonna call it there, and that's where we get the Treaty of Paris in seventeen eighty three where the United States is given their independence, and the British agree to leave United States territories, but in return, the u s pays off their debts, any debts that they had outstanding to the British they agreed to pay, and then also that you know loyalists and british subjects in america weren't to be
0: like retaliated against okay interesting and then so i do have a, a couple of questions on how accurate i guess was it and it, it seems like it kind of times there uh, lines up with what you're saying here but they make a point in the patriot to say their whole goal is to buy washington time in the north by drawing out how long Cornwallis has to stay in the south, and they basically want to delay his return north by causing problems for him in the south. Is that kind of what you're saying with that kind of hit and run, you know, slowing the advance thing? Is that kind of was that was the purpose of that to slow how quickly Cornwallis could get back to challenge Washington and give Washington time to build up strength?
1: Yeah, because the idea was basically to connect their forces in the south with the ones in the north. There was also kind of the same thing on a smaller scale in the, i forget who the british commanders were but there was basically like a force from canada that was supposed to link up with the force from i think it was new york city and basically cut new england in half but the force from canada was ended up being repelled and the guy in the south just didn't want to do that plan and ended up attacking <laughs> south instead of north but i think it was like basically the same idea on a bigger scale to have cornwallis come north from the south Because they knew that they were going to have to take over the South again anyway, it made sense to do a kind of two-front movement versus trying to go all the way South. And because, you know, the South was, at this time, more valuable than the North, to be, you know, to Mm. be honest.
0: Right, right. If you had to pick one, you're going to get more resources out of the South, yeah. Right, because
1: they're growing cotton, they're growing tobacco, they're growing sugar. Like, they're growing things, like, that's, that's the stuff that's actually valuable in England you know the the north and like there there wasn't like the industry and stuff that they would have during the civil war right cuz cause you, cause you
0: haven't yet hit the industrial revolution <laughs> yeah exactly
1: yeah so yeah the the south georgia south carolina were were by far more valuable to the british
0: than like vermont or new york right. would have right and then and then same thing they also mentioned in the film that they're holding out time for uh well one is for washington but then also for uh the french that the longer they can hold out the The more time that gives the French to to come over and help. And that's accurate as well? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, so do, do talk about, I guess, am I wrong? I, they, we see it in the film, and I thought this was the thing from learning about the Revolutionary War in the past. But the idea that, and we kind of see, they call out Gates for using these old tactics against the superior British force, and that we need to shift to guerrilla tactics to have more success. So to what extent were guerrilla tactics used, and actually... <laughs> For some of our listeners who may not know, why don't you explain what guerrilla, ta- guerrilla tactics are and to what extent the American forces were using them to uh, repel the British or fight the British?
1: Yeah, so guerrilla tactics are you know what you see in like what they call like irregular or like asymmetric warfare, where you have like a technically smaller and not as well armed force, but you use like hit and run tactics. Or you know you just like do a quick ambush and then run away and hide into the forest like that's the kind of stuff those kind of tactics were being used by the Americans not not exclusively like they still had their line up and shoot muskets and march at each other battles oh, okay but they were using guerrilla warfare to their advantage um, and even like with Nathaniel Greene in the South not necessarily guerrilla tactics although that that is a a part of that campaign but just being faster and lighter and more agile gave them an advantage
0: where they could run up, do some shooting, run away. Okay. So talk about... You were going to talk about, use this to talk a little bit more about uh, Washington himself. I know we talked about Washington with the Chiguguk episode. Did you have anything else about Washington's role in general? Or I guess is it kind of already covered, I guess, in the in what we said here?
1: Nothing more specific than, than okay. where he was and what battles he was in. Um, I will say during those... Winters basically every winter, where I was talking about how his forces were suffering through these harsh winters. Washington, he kind of fell out of favor sometimes
0: because there was talk of replacing him with Gates at, at one point, right?
1: Right, yeah. After after seventeen seventy six, when he gets pushed all the way back to Pennsylvania, there were people that are like, "Hey, maybe we need to um, not have this guy in charge because he's kind of getting his ass kicked and he's like losing." But then he would always like redeem himself. Gotcha. With like. Victories,
0: right? At some at some point, you can be good and losses aren't your fault,
1: right? And then you get to winner again, you get an ass kicked more, and people are like, "Hey, maybe maybe this is the time. Maybe George Washington. Maybe now he's like, we need to get somebody else." But then he would make more victories. People say, "Okay, all right, all right yeah, he, he can stay. He can stay." So I just think that that's interesting. That you know, nowadays looking back, we can see, oh yeah, George Washington, great military leader. You know, led the Continental Army to victory. You know, brilliant military mind. But at the time when he was getting defeated people weren't they didn't have this unwavering faith in george washington like i think some people might have this idea of oh yeah you know we're with george all the way to the end whatever he wants like yeah let's let's do what he says like we have faith in him it it wasn't that way when he was losing he he was in danger of losing his job
0: and again it's kind of a hindsight thing we just because we know that one we ultimately won two he becomes you know the first and arguably still most respected president in u.s history well in 1776 they didn't feel that way yet right it's like we talked about with with a Churchill where you gotta you can definitely you know rise and fall and and rise again and your reputation after your life is uh not always even close to what it was during your life so i, I did make a couple of notes real quick on lord cornwallis since he was the british commander and is mentioned in both films basically just a rich British military guy who just had grown up with it. He fought with the Prussians during the seven years war. The British were allied with the Prussians. So he was fighting um, over there all through the 1750s. But I was watching the YouTube biography on him and they kind of said, though, you mentioned him having a good reputation and maybe he did, but they were kind of saying, if you actually kind of look at the, Oh, if you look a little closer that he's kind of just a guy and they argued he just kind of kept falling or failing upward like he was just in it and he he had a good name and he didn't suck. Okay. So he kind of just kept getting promoted, even though he never actually did anything great. And they kind of said he was just an average general during the Revolutionary War. Like he wasn't bad, but he also wasn't anything special. And this conflict, when you're going up against George Washington, ultimately called for someone special. And so if they had had a better commander on the British side, they probably actually could have won this this conflict. And then that this uh, it was the biographics uh, YouTube channel. They compared uh, Cornwallis during the Revolutionary War to Wiley Coyote, with uh, Washington being the roadrunner. <laughs> okay, and I thought that was uh, interesting comparison, and it kind of actually fits with uh, some of the things you're you're talking about, where Cornwallis kind of keeps getting duped, and he's not necessarily incompetent, but he's just kind of not quite where he needs to be.
1: Right, and and he he keeps attempting to subdue and defeat Washington, but every time he tries, he just gets kind of, like, smacked around, but not enough to where he's actually, like, killed or completely defeated, so he's, like, able to, like, keep going.
0: Yeah, yeah, he kind of puts out the little seed with the box, <laughs> the little Acme, you know, little Acme trap, and then he goes away, and the road, road Washington stoops in, sneaks the seeds, and then Anvil falls on Cromwell's head, yeah, <laughs> pretty yeah. much like that.
1: <laughs> One aspect of the patriot of the movie that I really have an issue with is the way that Slavery and like the slaves are like that whole issue is depicted in the movie. So, in the movie, uh, Jason Isaac's character Tavington, when they first show up to Mel Gibson's farm, and he is talking to the group of like four or five black field workers that are there, and he says, Oh, you know, any slaves who fight for the British will get their freedom because at this time slavery was actually outlawed by the british right in in england yeah in, right in england uh, not in the colonies obviously and they say oh we're uh, we're not slaves we're actually free and it's it's like this weird thing where it's like oh like the movie is framing it as oh yeah what a what a racist dick jason isaac's character is for assuming that these black guys are slaves just because they're black it's like no 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 he's in south carolina In the 1780s? They're slaves. It's not it's (laughs) yeah, it's he was ninety-nine percent like it just because he happened to stumble onto the farm of like the one guy in the area that has black people working on his plantation that aren't slaves doesn't mean that slavery wasn't an issue in the rest of the South. It's just framed in a really weird way where it's like it's trying to make him look like he's a racist for assuming they're slaves when like when all of mel's friends would
0: have been slaveholders yeah
1: right and like that probably wasn't like that would have been such an outlier thing especially in the south to have black
0: field workers that you didn't own because then like because it does kind of then beg the question it's like well so then where do they live will they still live with you so they're kind of indentured servants or yes you're paying them a wage and then are you charging them rent like how does the situation work because like you said it just really did not happen yeah
1: and when you think about it from, like, how a white slave owner would have thought about it, it's like, that'd be so needlessly expensive for him to hire these free yep. people when you could just buy slaves. Right, right. And then there's also that scene later on in the movie when they're in the swamps and Heath Ledger is, like, talking to the another black character and is like, oh, and and we're fighting for... A country word freedom for all men and all men are treated equally and it's like that wasn't a south carolina <sighs> sentiment <laughs> yeah it's like the son of a plantation owner would not have been having that conversation and it's very clearly this like revisionist history where it's yes. like oh yeah all these guys that were fighting in the revolution were like 100 percent morally pure and even by today's standards and If slavery existed, yeah, it existed, but, like, these guys, not with them, they would have... It's like, no. These were slaveholders, man. Right. They were slaveholders.
0: And that's where the whole thing gets really hokey for me, too, is with the... (laughs) I mean, it is literally called the Patriot. But the raw, raw patriotism of Mel Gibson, like, it's just just so... (laughs) It's almost masturbatory with just how... He's he's literally grabbing the American flag and heading back into battle and the troops are trying to retreat and he's rallying them back to victory, waving the flag real big, and like you said, it's all this rah-rah, freedom, America, F yeah. I actually like that scene. <laughs> just, oh my god, it's so it's too much, man. It's too much.
1: I know, but I but it's too much in a good way. But but you're right though. Like the yeah, the I don't like when movies treat issues like that because it's like it's it's reductionist it's reductionist and it treats the audience like like you're dumb like you can't handle any kind of like moral complications or like
0: nuance is okay right there's no nuance in this movie
1: right like we say all the time history is complicated and yes just because these people were fighting for their freedom against the oppression of the british doesn't mean that they weren't themselves also oppressing people with slavery it's like both of those things can happen at the same time and we can both like we're adults we have brains we can both admire them for their courage and their them wanting to stand up to the british while at the same time saying that it was bad that they owned slaves and so you don't have to have you don't have to make the character i don't know i i feel like it 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 wouldn't have been impossible for them to make mel gibson still be a sympathetic character while also acknowledging that that Type of person in the South was would also have owned slaves.
0: Yes, at the end of the day, and I mean that's this is part of my big beef with it. It's a elementary school level plot about the Revolutionary War with R rated violence, and it just seems so incongruous. And then the other with the with the slave issue, the character that they have on Mel side who's also the most openly racist, which is of course still incredibly tamely racist for a a slaveholder. Uh, In the south of the time And then his arc by the end He like doubles down on saying It is an honor to have you fighting alongside us An honor It's like yeah no He's not having that quick of a turnaround It's just no, It's ridiculous
1: Yeah not, not only would he not have said that He would have not even viewed that guy as human In the same way as he would a yeah. white person
0: At best three fists And that was still a decade away
1: <laughs> R- Right and, and, and like the most Like, the highest respect that he would have for that guy is, like, a useful tool to help them in their fight against the British. Right, especially with how we saw him start. Yeah, anyway, so I kind of just wrote this whole thing's just a crappy melodrama. In reality, slaves were actually more likely to fight for the British because they would have gotten
0: their freedom fight that way. Right, which is what Jason Isaacs is proposing to them, and they, but they make him a bad guy by saying they were free men. That is historically accurate, that if, like... Now, granted... He conscripts Freeman though, after that after they turn him down, yeah.
1: Right. And even the ones that did end up fighting for the British and did get their freedom and were able to, you know, go back to England and live as technically free, they still face discrimination. Like, they're still... It's still... You're still a black guy in Europe in the 1780s. It's not like race. It's not like with the... With slavery going away in, in England that racism went away. But, yeah, again, history is complicated, and... Yeah, the British were the ones that were freeing the slaves that they came across. It was not that way with the Continental Army.
0: Right, right, because they couldn't risk uh, alienating their comrades in the South. So even if you're from New Hampshire and you're an abolitionist, you are going to then try to free slaves to get them to fight for the colonies when then you're just going to piss off the Southern colonies. And now they're going to, yeah. it's almost like that would lead to a civil war.
1: Okay, I also wanted to talk um, just r- really quickly, if we could, about Native American involvement in the conflict. I won't get like won't go super in depth, mostly because I didn't like do a lot of super in depth research about this. But
0: Native Americans were recruited by both sides. Okay, I was going to ask about that because what we see in Drums Along the Mohawk with the battle there is actually has heavy Native American involvement.
1: Right, and actually in upstate New York is where in upstate New York, and then. In the territory like west of where the colonies were, was uh, at that time very heavily populated by Native Americans. So both sides saw them again, not as like we need to get these people to help us, you know, like we would think of like the colonists. The attitude that they had was not like, oh, we need to get the French to help us. It was like we need to use this tool, we need to use these tools. Like these are. Basically, weapons uh, for lack of a better term, right, yeah, they were using them as human weapons and so promised them whatever they wanted, really, because they could always just go back on it later, to try and get them to fight. And they ended up fighting not only, you know, getting them to fight the British or getting them to fight the Americans, but they would then exploit their disagreements between tribes to get them to fight each other. Like, oh, yeah, that tribe Mm. over there that you already don't like, they're on the side of the British. So if you help us, we'll help you fight them. And then they would go and it it was like, and what do we care if the natives are fighting each other? And sometimes, preemptively, like, well, if we get them to wipe each other out, now they can't be used against us, that type of thing. It's kind of a win-win, you know?
0: I'm thinking of Longshanks and Braveheart saying, send the Irish first. They're dead mean nothing. It's kind of like that. Basically the same thing. Yeah, yeah, basically the same thing. I
1: saw um, someone said, like, it was, like, a comment on a YouTube video about the Patriot talking about they call the Patriot Braveheart 2, like, American edition or something. Well, it's just four years later.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. And then um, I wanted to talk real quick. So something else that we see in Drums Along the Mohawk in that final battle is the uh, women getting involved. Mm, yeah. So, like, you have the, the women that are there fighting, like, loading the muskets and stuff and handing them up to the guys on the walls. And so I wanted to talk a little bit about women and their involvement in the Revolutionary War. The most famous example is probably Molly Pitcher, who is like her the, the existence of someone actually named Molly Pitcher is like historically dubious, but there was a woman named Mary McCauley, who was very likely involved in actual like direct conflict. Basically, was married to a guy who was fighting and was traveling along with the army doing like washing and cooking and stuff and, and acting as a nurse and then mans the guns when her husband goes down. That That is a story that is attributed to this Mary Macaulay, uh, which then kind of turned into the legend of Molly Pitcher. But then more broadly, there were women involved in all kinds of stuff. Like I said, washing, cooking. Actually, I think in The Patriot, don't we see in that needlessly gory hospital scene I think there's women oh. there showing, giving you know people medical care.
0: Oh, right, of course.
1: They were spies, engaged in espionage. Um, another thing is that, like, while the war is going on, all the men or a, a large percentage of the, your able-bodied men are leaving their farms and their stores and their you know whatever to go and fight in the war, and someone has to keep that stuff running, and so women were usually the ones that were doing that. So, like, a guy. You know, thirty-five-year-old Bob would leave his farm. Well, his wife is now the one that has to keep the farm running while he's gone for however many years, right? And maybe even longer if if he never comes back. Oh, and then one other uh, little note for uh, woman involvement: there was a girl, and I call her girl because she was only sixteen years old at the time. That is basically a female Paul Revere. Um, she did a midnight ride in April, seventeen seventy-seven. And actually wasn't captured like Paul Revere was and rode to raise alarm of the British coming in in her area and to get the Uh the Minutemen ready. And she was a a 16 year old girl um, named Sybil Ludington. And uh, I don't know. I just thought that that was interesting because it's like I've never heard of her. But she's did basically the exact same thing as Paul Revere and arguably more successfully because she didn't get captured at the end.
0: And then the, another one that actually I think Joe mentioned us uh, mentioned this woman to us during the tournament. It, and I actually I forgot about it until so just now. And you were you were kind of talking and made me think of Agent 355 was the mm. kind of the female spy during the American Revolution. But like to the point we don't actually know who she really was. But so there's not really much to say about her because we don't have her identity. But she went by Agent three thirty three fifty five, and then there actually I never I didn't actually end up seeing. It. I don't think the reviews were very good, sadly. But there was a film called The Three Fifty Five that came out earlier this year.
1: Oh, the like shitty all girl action movie that got horrible reviews.
0: Yeah, but I think it's it's, it's the name is inspired by this character, this uh, real life uh, figure. Oh, okay, uh, yeah, I think it's a contemporary movie. It's not set in Revolutionary War, but I think they got the name. From the spy, I think that, I guess the conceit is probably again i haven 't seen the movies I obviously the conceit is that this woman started a two century long spy agency that has persisted to the present would be my would be my guess i I wanted to briefly talk about the Marquis de Lafayette because uh, he is a character in hamilton he obviously doesn't play in this movie at all i don't think he, or either of these movies i don't think he's even mentioned there's is he mentioned
1: no 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 he's he's not mentioned, but there is um a french character there, I was going to say there's the French guy in The Patriot. Yeah, but he's not. He's not Lafayette, and he's because
0: he he wouldn't have been high ranking enough. He's a major and and too old. I mean, Lafayette came over here as a teenager,
1: right? But it's I think that it's not necessarily to Lafayette specifically, but it is this kind of like nod or like allusion to the French involvement.
0: Yes, yes, and honestly, I want to talk him briefly, and I I mentioned already. I think if we do a most interesting people in American history, you got to have Lafayette as a candidate. Yes, he's not. American per se, I mean, or sorry, he is definitely French, but he is considered the hero of two worlds, which is the name of the autobiography that's came out recently about him. But also, like he was called that at the time, like in his lifetime, right? Even like in his 30s, he was already being called like the hero of two worlds. So he is uh, similar to what I was saying with Cornwallis. He was just kind of a, a rich guy who grew up in the military. His family was so rich that, like, when Lafayette, as a boy, was learning to ride horses. Well, there is three future kings in the group learning to ride horses with him. Like, that's kind of the level of nobility that uh, he grew up in. He was even named like an officer at age 13, even if it's more of a token thing. But, and so it kind of makes it sound like he could definitely be a guy who ends up just being this elitist snob. But he kind of, his whole life is spent fighting for people's rights and the rights of the regular citizen, despite his upbringing. And he's kind of this remarkable figure yeah in that sense, his full name again, Marquis de Lafayette is just his title. <laughs> his full name is uh Marie joseph paul Yves Roque du dumontier uh so that's why that's uh, say that five times fast <laughs> yeah so yeah, so that's why we just call him Lafayette. <laughs> basically he was kind of just this young up and coming military minded very much like a Churchill where he just was like looking for action. And when this fighting starts over in the new world, he is, one, enamored with the cause of independence because that's something that interests him and he might one day want to do something similar in France, which, spoiler alert, he does. And two, he's just looking to basically make a name for himself and is in need of a war <laughs> to do that. So he heads over as a teenager but also, like, has to basically sneak away from the country. like. No one wanted him to go. The king's telling him not to go. His, I think his dad might be dead, but his father-in-law is telling him not to go. Like, almost to the point that he has to abscond. Like, he's considered a fugitive. Like, it was, it was basically illegal for him to go over when he went, went over. Huh. Uh, but he goes anyway. He, he quickly tries to ingratiate himself with the Americans. But they've had several French people trying to ingratiate themselves and with false claims of knowing the king and being rich. And so at first they kind of rebuff Lafayette, and then it's like, oh no no no, he really does know the king, and he really is really rich. Yeah, and they're like, oh, okay okay, and then he, and he also says he'll fight for free, and they're like, um okay yeah sure we'll we'll bring it along. And he meets Washington, and over the course of like just a few weeks or a few months, the two bond very very quickly. Like it, it becomes this very strong father son relationship. And not the untoward kind you were mentioning with uh, von Steuben. But, uh, like, sincerely, Lafayette doesn't have uh, a father anymore. And so he really does kind of take Washington to heart as a father figure. And Washington didn't have any biological children and very much sees Lafayette as his surrogate son. Like, there's a very, very strong connection between these two. Uh, So much so, Lafayette, when he goes back to France and fathers a son... Uh, while he's recruiting troops, names that son George Washington Lafayette. So definitely, definitely a bond there. They don't really give him a lot of troops. he's kind of just becomes Washington's right hand man, where he's just kind of always with Washington. So he's, it takes him forever, longer than he would like to ever actually get control or command of troops himself. He's usually just Washington's right hand, and just kind of everywhere Washington is. uh At first, he's uh, wounded in a battle. I forget which one it was off the top of my head. But he's with the troops during that winter, struggling to survive at Valley Forge. Lafayette's right there with them. So every time he's given a chance, he makes a name for himself. Uh, he does go back to France during the war to rally support for the American cause. Because he had gone over illegally, he's actually arrested at, at first by the French. But kind of more of a token a token thing, because he is doing really well and kind of making the French proud. And then he comes back to the United States. He does say in 1781... He kind of helped hold Cornwallis at bay while the American and French forces got into position. And I'm going to skip over for now because it, it's probably not part of the American Revolution or American history. It's kind of more what he does when he goes back to France. He does play a pivotal role in both the French Revolution and subsequent revolutions. And he, uh, he does a great job throughout his life. I was going to ask.
1: I was going to ask if he, if, that, if he did anything. Like, if, I, I assumed he would be because he's French. And a military leader, and it's like, right after the American Revolution is the French Revolution, so I was going to ask what he was doing.
0: Oh, yeah, like, he wrote with Jefferson the Declarations of Rights of Man. Like, okay, he's, like, hugely important, but what both uh, hurts his career and saves his life is he's very much a moderate. So, while he's pro-French Revolution and... Wants the people to have freedom. He wants to establish a constitutional monarchy. So he's also a guy who multiple times mm. steps in to save the lives of the royal family, while also being very pro-revolution. Gotcha. Okay. And ultimately, this leads to him being ousted/slash escaping before the radicals move in. He, yeah. Anyway, so uh, and then and then kind of throughout. So he ends up actually imprisoned in Austria uh, in the latter half of the French Revolution. But again, he was so he's very. He's kind of anti everybody. He was he was anti Robespierre because he's not a radical like that, and he also was anti Napoleon when he comes in because because he doesn't want the authoritarian in charge. Ro- uh, right, Lafayette wants democracy in France. He's in he's again right. his formative years were literally fighting for the American Revolution, and now he wants the same right. thing in France.
1: He w- wants democracy, but would have been cool with a figurehead monarch like they have in the UK or something like. That now
0: absolutely absolutely so so yeah after he's imprisoned by the austrians because the french had gone to war with them napoleon negotiates his release and wants to recruit him but he's like uh i don't like what you're doing either because you're just going the, you're just going to become another monarch so he kind of just kind of always takes this middle ground because become a french politician helps with the restoration of the bourbons but then also when one of the bourbons becomes too authoritarian again well then he's right back fighting to get them off the throne so he's he's just kind of writing this middle ground his whole life anyway The last thing worth mentioning, though, about him with regards to the Americas is in 1824, he gets invited back to visit the United States, and he kind of goes on this hero's welcome tour because this is 50 years later. He's the last major general alive. Right, yeah. So in 1824, Lafayette is traveling the United States, and now 20-some colonies or states or whatever it is, and basically parades heroes welcome everywhere he goes and that's when you get everything in the united states that's named lafayette was probably named lafayette in 1824 or thereabouts that's cool because he was like the, yeah he was the hero of two worlds i saw one note that even uh, in 1830 he even declined an offer to become like a french dictator not with the same connotation but basically to be in charge right right more with probably the roman connotation than with the 20th century connotation he died in 1834 in his 70s and he's buried in Paris but some at least some of the dirt covering his grave is from Bucker Hill in Boston. That's cool. He's very much he's very much both and I think very much deserves to be considered a figure in American history because of that. And so I'll I'll, I'll definitely be advocating yeah, for his inclusion in our uh, most interesting person in American history <laughs> tournament here in a few years. And again, there's more with the French stuff, but that's, that's probably we've kind of we don't really have time for that uh, in today's episode. But if we talk about him later, I'm excited to do a deep dive on Lafayette. My one other random note that ties into the beginning of the conflict, you were talking about the Minutemen, and I do love in New England, you definitely get all of these revolutionary war mascots. You have the Philadelphia 76ers, or mm. obviously the 1776ers, the basketball team. The Patriots, New England Patriots, are the you know the team out of out of Massachusetts, just outside of Boston, which is why it is New England. And then the University of Massachusetts is the Minutemen. So yeah. there's and I'm and I'm and I'm sure there's dozens more. Those are just the ones I kind of know off the top of my head. But it's a uh, very much deliberate and deliberate and they, that part of the country that kind of takes pride in being the heart of the of the revolution.
1: Tennessee is the Vols. Is that is that related to the Revolutionary War? Or is that a, a subsequent conflict? Because it's the Volunteers.
0: Oh, you know what? I'm not sure off the top of my head. I, 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 I would think that'd be after. But I, I'm sure there is a story there. But I I, I don't know it. I, my, actually, my dad might know it. I've probably heard it before.
1: Oh, it's the War of, it's the war of 1812.
0: Okay. Yeah. Uh, a few more random notes. Uh, they keep mentioning Mel's character had this, this haunted past in this big battle where he kind of helped massacre some people at Fort Wilderness. That seems to be not a particular real thing, but also that similar things like that may have happened. Does that sound about right? That that specific incident is fictional, but that there are similar things that had happened. Oh,
1: yeah. Think about like uh, in Northwest Passage where there's that the massacre where they show up and just like kill an entire
0: right, basically, right. settlement worth of of natives. Like that stuff happened all the time. Exactly. I looked up bundling. They they tie Heath Ledger into a little sack so that he because he's he's kind of stuck there overnight in convalescence there and they got the young daughter he they he is courting and so they bundle him up into a sack. And so I was like, okay, that's a weird thing to make up. So I researched it and one, it was a thing. It was more of a thing in the north, so it's probably less likely that they would have done it in the south, although they may have done it for an isolated incident like this. But it sounds like if I, and I kind of, I was kind of skimming over this, I guess, but to me, it sounds like where they would actually use this uh, thing of bundling would be to test the compatibility of a young couple. And you would actually bundle them both together with what was called a bundling board separating them. So you'd basically be in a right. bag together with a board now keeping you physically apart. But the idea is that you could then, quote, sleep together together chastely to just see if you were compatible and just right. how do you get yeah. along together at, at night I it's, it's bizarre but it was a thing uh oh this was a sad one my another random note here is the little girl playing mel's youngest daughter yeah that actress died when she was 21 years old what yeah yeah how that happened uh i think it was like an accident it was ruled an accidental overdose
1: and heath ledger's in this movie too
0: yeah ironically she died very similar to heath you know yes.
1: I actually really like Heath Ledger's performance in this movie. I think it's one of the
0: he's basically good in about everything. Like it's unreal. I was gonna say
1: mo- most of most of the performances in the movie. Like Mel Gibson is obviously over the top, and Jason Isaacs is like super over the top. But like the rest of them are like serviceable, just okay. Cooper's always good, with the yeah. exception of like the eye really dialogue that right. Heath has to say about you know the oh all men are created equal. But that's not that's not on him. I feel like that's that's on the writers. Right, but right. like his performance is actually really good in this movie and. Yeah, I don't know. I just watching this movie and seeing Heath Ledger. I was like, man, he's he's a really good actor. Like in everything he's in, he is. I, I can't think of anything that I've seen him in. And I'm like, I I don't like like I just all the stuff that I've seen him. I mean, obviously, you know, the, the Dark Knight is like his big one. Right. But also, Brokeback Mountain. But right. Yeah. But I mean, ev- everything. Even even stuff like this, where it's like it's just a a kind of a you know blockbuster or role, kind right, of right. not taken seriously action movie he's his, he still shows up and puts it a a good performance there's
0: very much i guess it just makes this jump to my head, mind real quick there's almost a james dean comparison where he just kind of had was you know obviously died too mm. young but man he was off to an unreal start mm-hmm. yeah and uh i did want to mention the one bright spot in drums along the mohawk their landlord she is awesome okay <laughs> the uh the uh the old lady landlord is just. She was uh, just kind of this rambunctious, irreverent old lady, kind of honoring in a very nineteen thirties, nineteen forties kind of movie way. And then I was looking up just now; she was the one Oscar nomination for Drums Along the Mohawk was her for Best Supporting Actress. So I, I thought that was appropriate because she she definitely stood out to me. I even wrote my notes. She's the only bright spot in an otherwise very dull movie. Yeah, so she she was fun. Um, and then the Patriot was nominated for three Oscars but it's kind of the technical stuff because it's cinematography score john williams and sound which kind of makes sense for for your your war epic by roland emmerich
1: yeah and the cinematographer i can see too because like the landscapes and stuff that they're shooting like it's a good looking movie
0: no yes absolutely
1: and like all of the like i mentioned before especially that scene where he steps out of his porch and is watching that battle and it's like a huge pan across like Probably over a miles worth of territory, and there's a battle going on the whole time, yeah, and it looks yeah. awesome. And there's, I don't know, like that. That scene is so cool, and it looks so good. Like I can, I can see a, a cinematography nomination for sure.
0: Yeah, they're uh, they're not too far from making this a great movie. But the problem is, it's, I still think it's a tough fix. That was not the issue with this movie. <laughs> no, right, 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 right. No, it's there's some good pieces in place. You need a rewrite, you need an edit, but you also need... What the tricky part is, how do you edit it down while also adding nuance? That's a tough trick to pull off. So I think it might be a tough fix, but there's definitely potential there.
1: You have to just write the movie differently and have just the characters just be different.
0: <laughs> You're right. The, the script needs overhaul completely. So it's funny, I, I kind of mentioned, I t- always tend to, on Rotten Tomatoes, I seem like I always uh, uh, side with the lower side. And looking at both of these, that is accurate. The Patriot is a 62-81, slash and I'm definitely on the Critic side with the 62 there. But then the flip side is, Drums Along the Mohawk is an 82-59, slash and I'm definitely with the Audience on the lower side there. That seems to be just kind of a trend when I'm always looking at Rotten Tomatoes stuff. Yeah. Okay, yeah, so that's that's the... Revolutionary war in a nutshell. Obviously it was like a what is it from seventy five to eighty one? So a six year or eighty two was actually when was uh Yorktown? Well the the treaty wasn't signed till eighty three. Oh wow. But when was York when was Yorktown? Uh October seventeen eighty one. Okay. So it is a just over six year conflict, seven, eight till so you get the actual treaty. Uh so we obviously everything we did here was a very quick glossing over. But hopefully this kinda helps put some of this in perspective and then you can kind of think of it in terms of what we were talking about last week and what we'll get to when we talk about hamilton and that's the reason we're not going to talk about the actual war in hamilton but yeah so thanks for listening and we'll catch you later